Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8 11, Humayun and the Portuguese. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Babur, the great-great-grandson of Timur, establishes the Mughal dynasty when he conquered Delhi in 1526. Babur defeats the Rajputs in 1527 at the Battle of Khanwa and again at the Battle of Chanderi in 1528. Also in 1528, Babur defeats the Afghan nobility to become master of India. Babur dies in 1531 and is succeeded by his eldest son, Humayun. And with that, let's discuss the Portuguese attempts to establish trade routes to India. Vasco da Gama Vasco da Gama was a Portuguese explorer. Similar to Christopher Columbus, da Gama's story is a combination of history and myth. Unlike Columbus, Vasco da Gama is not well known to the general public. Therefore, there has not been as much scrutiny into his true story. Much of what we know about him comes from Portuguese propaganda. Francisco Contante Dominguez reveals this fact in his article, Vasco da Gama's Voyage, Myths and Realities in Maritime History. This article was written for Portuguese Studies of the Modern Humanities Research Association in 2003. The myths surrounding Vasco da Gama himself and his voyage were mainly created in the late 19th century, more than a century ago. At this time, a group of scholars devoted to maritime history began to study this particular subject, both through intensive work in the archives and by writing monographs on the history of maritime voyages. At this time, Portugal was facing a very serious political trauma, being unable to sustain its projects of expansion in Africa in the face of British colonialism. Maritime history was the mirror the country needed to reflect its past as well as the future. Unable to find the precise information they wanted led these historians to conclude that things must have been similar in the late 16th century to what came later. Gama's voyage was then understood as the result of a long period of experimentation, both from the viewpoint of previous maritime voyages of exploration and from the newly uncovered information about the technical resources then available. The truth is, like most European explorers of this era, Vasco da Gama was a brutal and violent man who killed hundreds of people when he did not get his way. Vasco da Gama launched an expedition in 1497 with the goal of finding an alternate route to India. His plan was to go around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. His small fleet of four ships left Portugal around the same time that Babur was trying to win back his principality in Fergana. Vasco da Gama's journey would open the door to the eventual European colonization of India. Initially, the Europeans came to India as merchants and traders. But, as we know all too well, that would inevitably change. Up to this time, 
Europeans had to pass through Muslim territory in order to reach India. This included overland routes controlled by either the Ottomans, the Mamluks, or the Persians. However, if Europe could find a sea route to India, they could avoid dealing with these powerful Muslim states. Vasco da Gama arrived in India on May 20, 1498 at Kapadu, which was part of a Hindu kingdom called Calicut. The kingdom of Calicut was on the Malabar coast in what is now the Indian state of Kerala. The king of Calicut was called Samudiri, which somehow got changed to Zamorin in English. The Zamorin was at his second capital when he learned of the arrival of the Portuguese fleet. He quickly returned to Calicut and welcomed the Portuguese with He quickly returned to Calicut and welcomed the Portuguese with traditional fanfare and hospitality. This included a grand possession of 3,000 Nayar, which were a Hindu caste. Vasco da Gama tried his best to work out a trade deal with the Zamoran king, but he was unsuccessful. There were many reasons for this. First, when the Zamoran asked the Portuguese their business in Calicut, da Gama replied, In search of Christians and spices. Perhaps, perhaps hinting at conversion and exploitation was not a good way to start a relationship. The second reason Vasco da Gama was unsuccessful was that the Zamorin was not impressed with the gifts the Portuguese presented to him. These included four cloaks of scarlet cloth, six hats, four branches of coral, a case of sugar, two barrels of oil, and a case of honey. The Zamorin expected something more lucrative, like gold or silver. The third reason the Portuguese were unable to work out a deal were the Muslim merchants already operating in the kingdom. The Muslims already had a relationship with the Zamorin, and they spread rumors that De Gama was really a pirate and not a royal ambassador at all. And the final reason for the Portuguese failure was their own entitlement. Vasco da Gama asked for permission to leave some of his men behind to manage the merchandise they'd been unable to sell so far. The Zamorin rejected this request, stating they would have to pay customs duties in gold like every other merchant. No special treatment just because they were European. This final rejection ruined any hopes Vasco da Gama had of establishing a working relationship with the Zamorin. Insulted, the Portuguese kidnapped some of the Nayars, that was that Hindu caste we mentioned earlier, and 16 fishermen and took them back to Europe. Vasco da Gama came back to India five years later with an armed fleet. He attacked Arab merchants carrying Muslim pilgrims headed for Mecca. He slaughtered the Muslims on board, burning many of them alive. When the Zamorin refused to expel all Muslims from Calicut, da Gama bombarded the coast and attacked all merchant ships in the area. The Zamorin could not respond to these attacks militarily, yet he refused to change his mind. Frustrated, Vasco da Gama eventually returned to Portugal having accomplished nothing 
beyond leaving a trail of devastation. Portuguese India In 1505, King Manuel I of Portugal decided to give India another shot. This time, he sent an armada led by Francisco de Almeida. The Portuguese armada consisted of 1,500 men and 22 ships, including 14 caracks and 6 caravels. Caracks were ships with three or four masts, while caravels were small, light ships built for speed. Francisco de Almeida's mission was simple. 1. Establish Portuguese control over the Indian spice trade. 2. Build forts along the East African and Indian coasts to protect this trade. And 3. Expand the Portuguese spice trade by building alliances with local chieftains. In carrying out this mission, Francisco de Almeida left a trail of death and destruction across two continents. He plundered, raided, and destroyed Muslim ports from Mozambique and all along the East African coastline. Then he waged war against the Zamorin, destroying his entire fleet of ships. Such destruction led the Muslim traders of Calicut to petition the Mamluk Sultan for protection. However, the Mamluk navy was not strong enough to counter the Portuguese armada. Furthermore, the Mamluks were dealing with internal strife and a rebellion, further limiting their ability to deal with the Portuguese. But the Mamluks could not afford to just ignore their transgressions. Not only did the Mamluks need the spice trade revenue for themselves, they had to respond to this Christian aggression against Muslims. The Mamluks found an unlikely ally in Venice. The Venetians were also interested in curtailing Portuguese expansion into India. You see, Venice benefited as middlemen in the spice trade. If Portugal established its own trade network from India, they could sell spices at a lower price, thereby undercutting the Venetians. But there was one glaring problem. The Venetians were Christian and they could not be seen assisting Muslims against their fellow Christians. If they were going to get involved, it had to be kept secret and unofficial. With help from the Venetians and the Ottomans, the Mamluks were able to cobble together a fleet of ships to take on the Portuguese. Unfortunately for the Mamluks, most of their ships were galleys. Galleys had small sails, but they were mostly powered by oars, human power, and they had no cannons. These types of ships were obsolete compared to the Portuguese caracs and caravels. To put this in perspective, galleys were the same type of ships Salahuddin al-Ayyubi used in his war against the Crusaders, and that was 350 years earlier. The Mamluk fleet did include a few Karaks. However, most of the Muslim sailors on board were archers 
and had very little experience using cannons. The Mamluks and the Portuguese first clashed at the Battle of Chol in March 1508. Chol is a coastal town in the modern Indian state of Maharashtra, about 50 miles south of Mumbai. The Portuguese were trying to establish a foothold in Chol's port and were supported by a small fleet commanded by Lorenco de Almeida, who was Francisco de Almeida's son. Despite their obsolete ships, the Mamluks defeated the Portuguese at Shawl, killing Lorenco de Almeida in the process. Francisco de Almeida, the father, was hundreds of miles away at Cochin, near the southern tip of India, when he received the news of his son's death. Burning for revenge, he headed north to confront the Mamluks. The Portuguese and the Mamluk fleets clashed at the Battle of Diu in February 1509. Diu is a small island off the southern Gujarati coast. The Muslim alliance now included Zamorans and Gujaratis in addition to the Ottomans and Mamluks. And the Mamluk fleet still outnumbered the Portuguese. However, the Muslims were hampered by three major issues. First, the Muslim fleet had not yet been repaired from the damage sustained at the Battle of Chol the previous year. Second, the Muslim alliance was not fully united. The Muslim ruler of Chol was afraid of the Portuguese and was hesitant to fully throw his support behind the other Muslims. However, he did not want his Muslim allies to know about this. And finally, as explained earlier, the Portuguese ships were simply more powerful than the Muslim ships. The Portuguese had modern ships with cannons and sailors that knew how to use them. All of these factors resulted in a decisive Portuguese victory and the destruction of nearly the entire Muslim fleet. Still not satisfied, Francisco de Almeida went on to commit several atrocities against Muslim populations throughout India and Africa. In 1510, the Portuguese king appointed a general named Alfonso de Albuquerque as the viceroy of India. However, Francisco de Almeida refused to step down until after he had exacted revenge on the Mamluks for his son's death. When Alfonso de Albuquerque did take over, he teamed up with the Hindu Vijayanagar Empire to defeat the Bijapur Sultanate in Goa. This led to the establishment of a permanent Portuguese settlement in Velha Goa or Old Goa. Velhagoa became the headquarters of Portuguese India and the seat of the Portuguese Viceroy, or Governor of India. From Goa, Alfonso de Albuquerque governed all Portuguese territories throughout Asia. The Portuguese also acquired additional territory along the coast of Gujarat from the sultans of Gujarat. These included Daman, which was occupied by the Portuguese in 1531 and formally ceded in 1539. Salset, Bombay, and Basin, which were occupied in 1534. And the island of Diu, 
which was formally ceded to the Portuguese in 1535. Humayun Nasiruddin Muhammad Humayun succeeded his father as ruler of the Mughal Empire in 1531. But the empire his father had founded was still on shaky ground. Despite Babur's victories at Panipat, Kanwa, and Gagra, the Rajputs and the Afghans had not fully accepted Mughal rule in India. Such a situation required a strong leader with focus, charisma, and vision. Humayun did not quite fit these characteristics. He was an experienced and brave fighter. He had, after all, operated as his father's lieutenant in many battles. But he was not necessarily a good ruler, nor a strategic thinker. He would often linger in his successes, giving his enemies time to outmaneuver him. He also took an excruciatingly long time to move his armies. This lack of urgency was compounded by Humayun's superstition. He refused to make any significant decisions without first consulting with his astrologers. Like his father, Humayun also consumed large amounts of alcohol and opium. And he could be very emotional and temperamental at times. Not ideal qualities for a ruler of this era. Finally, Humayun did not have a strong personal bond with either his soldiers or his advisors like his father had. Throne of Thorns Humayun had one other problem. He was too trusting of his family. He assigned his brothers to rule over various provinces of the empire. This in itself was interesting considering how common fratricide was in other empires, like the Ottomans, and how common it would later become in Mughal history. Suffice it to say, Humayun's trusting nature would come back to haunt him. He gave his brother Kamaran, Kabul, and Kandahar, both in Afghanistan. Hindal received Alwar and Mewat, both in northern India. Askari was assigned to Sambal in modern Uttar Pradesh, India. And his cousin Suleiman received Badakhshan in northeast Afghanistan. In addition to the empire, Humayun also inherited his father's enemies. There were still many people in India who wanted nothing more than to destroy the fledgling Mughal dynasty whom they saw as foreign invaders and usurpers. These included Shur Khan Sir, an Afghan warlord who ruled over Bengal and Bihar, as well as Bahadur Shah, the Sultan of Gujarat. Alauddin Lodi of the recently deposed Lodi clan was still at large. The Lodis were the former rulers of the Delhi Sultanate. And Alauddin Lodi was Ibrahim Lodi's brother. And Ibrahim Lodi was the last Lodi to rule the Delhi Sultanate and had been defeated by Babur. Even though Humayun inherited his father's enemies, he did not inherit his father's friends. 
In addition to the potential threat that his brothers might turn against him at any moment, Humayun's court was full of backstabbing, drama, intrigue, and deception. One example was the case of Muhammad Zaman Mirza. Muhammad Zaman was a Mughal general and the son of Badiyus Zaman Mirza, the ruler of Herat. Muhammad Zaman briefly attempted to assert his independence and even flirted with rebellion. However, when the plot was uncovered, he fled to Gujarat where he was protected by Sultan Bahadur Shah. This distraction gave Humayun's brother, Kamran, the perfect opportunity. Kamran led an army into Punjab, occupying the city under the flimsy excuse that he only wanted to congratulate his brother. Rather than punish his brother for this treason, Humayun, wanting to avoid a civil war, ignored his brother's actions. Once again, this would come back to haunt him. Bahadur Shah and Shur Shah But the real threat to Humayun came from outside his domains. Particularly when Bahadur Shah and Shur Shah began expanding their territory. Humayun decided to check this expansion militarily, going after Bahadur Shah, Sultan of Gujarat, in 1535. This was roughly 25 years after the Portuguese in the Vijayanagar Empire had defeated the Bijapur Sultanate in Goa. Therefore, the Portuguese had already begun occupying and establishing ports and trading factories all along the coast of Maharashtra. Humayun made good progress against Bahadur Shah early on, capturing two major forts. This included the Mandu Fort in Uttar Pradesh and the Champanar Fort in Gujarat. Bahadur Shah fled to the coast of Gujarat and Bahadur Shah fled to the coast of Gujarat and took refuge on the island of Diu. While hiding out on Diu, the Portuguese reached out to Bahadur Shah and tried to build an alliance with him. At this moment, with Bahadur Shah at his most vulnerable, Humayun took his foot off the gas. Instead of marching to the coast to finish him off for good, Humayun slowed down to enjoy his recent military successes. Perhaps he thought there was enough time to take care of Bahadur Shah later, but that turned out to be mistaken as he soon learned that Sher Shah was moving on Delhi. Humayun had to call off the campaign in Gujarat to rush back north to deal with Sher Shah, leaving his recent conquests defenseless. Bahadur Shah took this unexpected opportunity to reclaim the territory he'd lost to Humayun. Nonetheless, things didn't turn out really well for Bahadur Shah. While he was supposedly working on an alliance with the Portuguese, he was secretly in contact with the Deccan Sultanists to betray them. He had even sent a message to Suleiman I, the Ottoman Emperor, suggesting an alliance against the Portuguese. The Portuguese discovered his betrayal and fighting broke out. 
There are conflicting stories about what happened next, but somehow, Bahadur Shah wound up on a Portuguese ship. Perhaps he'd been invited to the ship for peace talks, or perhaps he'd been captured. Whatever happened, Bahadur Shah was eventually thrown overboard into the Arabian Sea. But the story does not end there. Sultan Suleiman I of the Ottoman Empire had already received Bahadur Shah's suggestion of an alliance. The Sultan was just as anxious to limit Portuguese influence and domination of the Indian Ocean as the Mamluks had been. Suleiman I appointed Hadim Suleiman Pasha as his admiral and sent him with a fleet of ships to help Bahadur Shah. However, by the time the Ottoman fleet arrived, Bahadur Shah was dead and the Portuguese were firmly entrenched at Diu. The Ottomans then allied with Bahadur's successor and proceeded to besiege the Portuguese. But the Portuguese held out and after four months, the Ottomans had to lift the siege and return home. The Portuguese went on to acquire more land in Gujarat. This territory would remain part of the Portuguese Empire until 1974, long after India achieved independence from Great Britain. In 1974, the Indian army invaded the remaining Portuguese possessions in India, finally ending Portuguese India. We will continue Humayun's story in the next episode. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, Simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 11. Before we get into the episode, a brief recap of where we are so far. Qutayba ibn Muslim is making good progress in Bukhara and Central Asia. 
And Hajjaj ibn Yusuf wants to expand his territory even further east and looks towards the Indus Valley. And with that, let's begin our discussion on the Umayyad conquest of Sindh. Now, a brief disclaimer. There is not much verified information regarding the Umayyad conquest of Sindh. Much of what we're discussing today actually comes from a manuscript called Chachnam. Chachnam is a Persian text written sometime around the 1300 CE. The Chachnam purports it claims to be a translation of an older Arabic document written in the 8th century when these events, that is the Umayyad conquest of Sindh, actually happened. The Chachnam describes Muhammad ibn al-Qasim's conquest of Sindh, that, that is the Indus Valley. Interestingly, most modern scholars do not accept this claim. They do not believe the Chachnam is actually a translation of an older document, of an older Arabic document. Instead, most modern scholars believe it is a collection of stories passed down over the centuries about Muhammad ibn al-Qasim's conquest of Sindh. So, with all that being said, I'm trying to tell you that we can't really be certain that the details I'm going through, I'm going to tell you, are true. But, hopefully, inshallah, the overall story is fairly accurate. Either way, this is really all we have to go on. There's no other documentation existing or that we have um, any awareness of right now that discuss the Arab conquest of Sindh. So we'll have to take this as best as we can. So I used a summary of Chachnam to discuss, to uh, prepare this episode, but I also use another book called Futuhul Buldan, written by Sheikh Al-Baladuri. And Futuhul Buldan does provide a very brief description of the conquest of Sindh, but it mostly corroborates what is in Chachnam. Generally, not the details, but the general sequence of events, it generally corroborates that. So hopefully this is a fairly accurate story. But once again, some of this we may have to take with a grain of salt and Allah knows best. All right, let's start off with some terminology. I want to quickly discuss the difference between Sindh and Hind. Sindh is a specific region. It is the lower Indus River Basin in what is now modern-day Pakistan. Before the arrival of Alexander the Great, this region, the Indus River in particular, was called Sindus. And I hope I'm saying that correctly. Sindus. But the Greeks pronounced Sindus as Indus, and over time, this land became known as India, from Indus, obviously. The people of this region were called Hindus, which means people of the Indus Valley. And the Indus Valley was called Hindustan in Urdu and in Persian. And in Arabic, as we know, the Arabic word for the Indian subcontinent is Hind or Al-Hind. So that's the difference between Sindh and Hind. Now let's talk about some geography. We went to terminology, now on to geography. 
Now, to the west of Sindh is a region known as Balochistan. Balochistan is divided between two modern countries, Iran and Pakistan. In the western part of Iran is the modern province called Sistan and Balochistan. That's really what it is. It's a two-word province, just like Trinidad and Tobago and Bosnia and Herzegovina. In Iran, the province is called Sistan and Balochistan. So that's part of Balochistan, the region of Balochistan. The other part of the region of Balochistan is the Pakistani province of Balochistan. Regardless of which country it's in, this region generally, even today, is very poor and very desolate. Sistan and Balochistan in Iran is the poorest province in Iran, and Balochistan, from what I've read, is also the poorest province in Pakistan. 